Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together, Bruce and I have written 35, 6, 7, boy, it's going up by the day, cookbooks, <laughs> including Grain Mains, the first ever cookbook to use whole grains as main components of every dish, and Instant Pot Bible copycat recipes, how to make your restaurant favorites in an Instant Pot. You know we're all about the Instant Pot, but this is our podcast, which is not necessarily about Instant Pots or copycat foods or any of that. Instead, this is our food and cooking podcast, and today we're going to be talking about food and movies. Bruce has got an interview with an extremely interesting person, Zoe Hegedush. Oh, you have to hear this, and we'll talk about why later. We've got our one-minute cooking tip and what's making us happy in food this week. So where do we start? We're going to start with food in movies, and we're not talking about popcorn and milk duds and, you know, the food you eat when you go to movies. Although, you know that there used to be, in the old days, some theaters in New York where Mark and I lived, up by Lincoln's and his little mm-hmm. art house, mm-hmm. and they actually still had bagels and logs. There and is so nothing can... <laughs> like sitting in a movie theater with a gar- when someone near you is eating white fish salad on a garlic mm-hmm. bagel. And then flossing their teeth when they're done. <laughs> It's disgusting. Lovely. I think that place also had, I don't think it was just your appetizing food. I think they had ham and cheese sandwiches <laughs> and ham and cheese croissants, which is, excuse me, the grossest thing in the world to make a sandwich out of a croissant. That makes me vomit every time I think of it. And I don't care what Denise Mickelson says, and I, if she's even listening to this podcast, she loves croissant yeah, sandwiches. She used to be the food editor at Fine Cooking. <laughs> um, yeah, she does like them. And Ugh. back at that movie theater, too, God, this is food in a movie. So we watched this movie, The Ice Storm with Sigourney Weaver. And at one point in the movie, she opens the freezer and pulls out a turkey. And of course, it's a frozen solid turkey. And the, the old lady sitting right behind us who was eating her whitefish and a garlic bagel had to say, that's the kind of turkey I buy. Yes. That was the kind of movie theater it was. Oh, God. I, was, I so <laughs> miss New York in so many ways. And what we want to talk about today is why food is so different in movies. And Bruce and I have done a lot of food shoots in our life. We've done, of course, all the shoots for our own books. We just came off a food shoot for our next cookbook, which is out this fall, Instant Air Fryer Bible, all about how to make food in instant brand air fryers. So we just came off that photo shoot. We've been on a lot of photo shoots. We've been on a lot of TV shows. We have craftsy courses on air frying and pressure cooking. Bruce has craftsy courses on knitting, but that's outside what we're doing right now. Anyway, those are very different from movie shoots. And we can easily think about best scenario movie food, right? What, like, like explain, like, what's a great movie that you love the food in? Oh, I think the food, and if, if you remember this movie, Babette's Feast, if you're oh, old God. enough, I like I am, because the movie was made in the mid-80s. And so if you were, like I was, in your mid-20s then, or maybe you've seen it oh, since. Oh, really? I was a child. I was five. <laughs> I saw it when I was five. Go mm-hmm. ahead. I'm, I'm a cougar, I guess. Yeah. Um, so Something like that. It's a basically it's a Danish drama takes place on the coast of Denmark in the mid 19th century in a small town, and a French refugee comes to the home of two Puritan ladies, and she Excuse ends up. Excuse me, Calvinists. Okay. The the Christian needs to con, just connect to uh, you well, know they correct. Are, they you. are Calvinists. Calvinists. And she is their housekeeper and cooks for them in 14 years, and she did keep one tie to France though, and that is every year this friend of hers in France sends her a lottery ticket from Paris. Right. And remember, right, it's the 1800s. Right. But right. She wins. And what does this woman do with all the money? She makes food. She buys wines. She buys incredible ingredients. And she cooks a feast for these Calvinist women that she lives Mm, with and for the whole 
town. Right. And these are people who don't drink and people who don't enjoy food. Right. So it's, they, a, they, it's a whole fun thing watching them. They decide not, they're not going to enjoy it, but of course they can't not they enjoy can't it. They can't not enjoy it because. All the quail and all that stuff. But, you know, here's the deal. You, you say all that, and here's the deal. Um, the, that food all looks beautiful. It partly is. is because, partly because it's in candlelight, but it's not in candlelight. The reason <laughs> that f- movie food looks so much better is because standing on the other side of that scene, are lighting designers, food designers. There are all kinds of people standing there waiting to make that food look better. And, you know, when, when Bruce and I have been on the Today Show, sure, that we should talk about that in a minute. That is an incredibly complicated food shot to take, and it is an incredibly complicated setup on the Today Show. But... It's still not movie money, and it's still not movie setup. That's why movies like Big Night make food look so beautiful because, you know, okay, great. So, you know, Stanley Tucci makes his meatballs or whatever he makes in Big Night, if you remember this movie from the mid-90s. Whatever he makes, uh, let me tell you, on a movie shoot, there are 500 of those meatballs sitting off to the side, (laughs) and they are literally having a two-hour discussion about which meatballs to use in the sauce. And I know you think, well, well, there's just meatballs in sauce. Oh, good grief. People's whole job's right on that. And it's not just that. When I make a meatball and I put it on one of our YouTube videos at Cooking with Bruce and Mark, a YouTube channel, to show you how to make meatballs, right? I it may not be the most beautiful meatball I've ever <laughs> did. And I've shot it with my iPhone. And it's not great lighting. But when they shoot a movie, think about those, you know, $30,000 lenses and think about yeah, the, the equipment absolutely. they're using that sees everything. And that meatball has to look so mouthwatering and so beautiful. And here's the problem. It has to be edible because these actors are going to eat it. Now, we've all seen actors poke and push food around, right? right. They don't eat mostly. But when they do, it has to be well, edible. Well, just think about how many crab dumplings they must have made for Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. I mean, they must have made <laughs> hundreds. I love that movie. Oh, and the barbecue if know, ducks. If you don't know that movie, it's angry, right? Eat, Drink, mm-hmm. Man, Woman. If you it don't is. know that movie, you should check it out from the mid-'90s. And again, there were probably hundreds of crab dumplings and there were probably dozens of smoke dogs on set to do. You know, when Bruce brings up lenses, this reminds me that, you know, we tried this on our last photo shoot. We just played around with this for a minute because our great photographer, Eric Metzger, who's now shot like a third of the books we've ever written, right? And Eric shot a lot Eric of our books. Eric has shot a lot of our books. Okay, yes, a third of them. Yeah, maybe like a third of the books we've ever written. Um, Eric has, you know, really fancy equipment and really beautiful lenses and all that kind of stuff. And so as things would come out on set, we'd have, you know, beauty shots. And I should tell you that uh, Bruce and I have always insisted from our very first cookbook that every single dish that is shot is exactly made as it occurs in the recipe. And I mean, it's down to the level that Bruce puts, let's say, the dried thyme in it, even if you'd never see the dried thyme. We just have this belief that it has to be completely real, right? Well, we want it to be real. We want it to be authentic i'm making the dish and quite honestly we're gonna eat it right so. so we don't do any of that crazy food selling stuff of you know take a raw chicken and paint it with lipstick and i don't know whatever people do <laughs> well you could put lipstick on a pig but i still wouldn't eat it <laughs> i might um anyway uh we don't do any of that we insist on absolutely 100 percent edible food i've i have been in so many shoots where we have struck where we've said we've got the shot we stopped and the the food stylists, if there are any, and the prop stylists, and I'll just dive onto the food because it's all edible and they eat it straight down. But, okay, so that's all said. 
I should this is my whole point. I went way around the blog to get to this point. The, you know, the, this food would come out. I take a shot of it for posting on social media for Instagram with my iPhone, right? And I have the latest iPhone, so it's got a good camera on it. There is nothing I could do to match Eric's $8,000 lenses. No. And he is a photographer, not a movie He's not a filmmaker. No, a filmmaker like, is a completely with different. With $25,000 and $35,000 yeah. lenses. Yeah. So my phone, yeah, it's got a great camera on it. Terrific. But standing in the exact spot Eric was standing in and taking the shot, my phone's picture looked like crap compared to his unbelievably gorgeous shot with his $8,000 lens. And I think about, you know, a movie like Tortilla Soup that came right. out in 2001, which was actually an American remake of Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. It took place like, in... You told me it was like line... I don't know this movie, Tortilla Soup, but you told me it's line by line practically. Basically, it is line by line with a Mexican family oh, that's so um, in, and, in and California. And you told me it has Raquel Welch. Oh, it's, she's great. Is because, she dead? Well, is she in a coffin? Do they wheel <laughs> out a coffin and there's Raquel Welch? Well, here's the thing. Just like Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, it's about a chef who has three daughters and his wife has died and he makes the family gather for these amazing feasts every Sunday. So you watch in tortilla soup, him making fabulous uh, tortilla soups and chicken pabil and candied pumpkin. And the kids have a friend whose mother comes to town. She's Her husband's dead. That's Raquel Welch. And she decides she's going to stick her claws into the chef. He wants her daughter. Mayhem ensues. Um, I, that, that is it. But one can only imagine the level of food prep that goes on in a shoot like that with big celebrities like Rocco Welch. I kid about her being dead, but the, <laughs> the, the when you know when you're paying celebrity money, then everything's got to look perfect. I can only imagine how much money they spent on the slice of pizza that Julia Roberts eats in Eat, Pray, Love. I can only imagine Julia Roberts' requirements for the pizza. <laughs> I don't know Julia Roberts. I don't know anything about her requirements, but it could be, for example, that she doesn't eat cheese, which would mean it would have to be a tofu cheese and blah, blah, blah. I mean, there could be all kinds of issues swirling around that. And it's so different from the Great British Baking Show oh. or the old Emerald Lagasse Show or the old Sarah Malton Well, shows. you're watching those shows to learn how to make something. Of course. We're watching these other movies that have food to be entertained, to see a story, and food happens to be a part of it, and we're not there to learn something. We're there just to drool and to be yeah, entertained. And, and I should tell you that when, when Bruce and I have done, the, I mentioned the Today Show, when we've done the Today Show, it's a minor league version of this, because when we've been on the Today Show, let's say making brownies, there are trays and trays of brownies mm. just offset, and they're cutting them to get the perfect brownie, but it still is not movie set level. I want to go back to you're talking about Eat, Pray, Love, because what I think is so great about that is that that's not a movie about food. I mean, food no. is part of the journey that the Julia Roberts character takes. But what I love about it is she's sitting in front of this pizza in Naples with a friend. And the scene is a giant restaurant with long tables. I mean, there's there's dozens of people. And they're crammed in between people, each of them with a pizza in front of them. And is that the friend says, no, I can't. You know, we've been on this trip and I'm eating too much. And so Roberts responds, look, I'm having a relationship with this pizza. And then she says to her friend, and I love this, I have no desire to be obese, but I do have a desire to enjoy every bite of my pizza. And maybe tomorrow to go buy a pair of larger jeans. <laughs> and 
<laughs> I love that because we mm. all need to be able to mm. get rid of the guilt and occasionally enjoy every slice we of pizza. We do, but I'm, I'm, I can't bump up at the top of the amount of jeans that I can buy. So <laughs> um, I agree. I agree completely. And, uh, you know, I agree that it's also funny. You know, I mean, it's dead funny that this, this gorgeously thin person, Julia Roberts, who I'm sure if I was standing beside her and she turned sideways, she would disappear like an angelfish. I'm, it's funny to think of her eating pizza. I should say that I was once on a treadmill in New York City next to Nicole Kidman. Was she, she was, eating pizza? She was on the treadmill next to me, and she was an angelfish. I mean, seriously, if she had turned and looked me straight on, I'm convinced she would have disappeared. <laughs> she was the thinnest thing I have ever seen. <laughs> it was, like, unbelievable. She was also the color of white paper. <laughs> So I think she never goes in the food uh, and never goes in the sun and never eats. But um, okay, so anyway, but back to what we're doing. I think that that it's interesting to say how movies. Uh, what do I want to say? Fetishize food, and part of it is that you want to see Julia Roberts eat, and you want to see Stanley Tucci eat, and you want to see celebrities eat. I mean, it's part of the whole makeup of food in movies. I don't necessarily want to see. No offense, Sarah Malton eat or see all of Hollywood eat. Frankly, I don't want to see these people eat necessarily. I love how always on the great british baking show they always linger on them putting the food right in their mouths <laughs> you know and yeah they don't do that in movies and i wanted to see raquel welch eat but she didn't I, I should say that that years ago bruce and i actually were considered for a tv show we actually sold a pilot to discovery and it never got made but it but the long and the short of this is that the man who was the head of the production company who helped us sell that pilot he had been essentially the force behind Paula Deen. And he told us that the secret to Paula Deen, and I'm going to take this for what it is, the secret to Paula Deen was that she knew how to act like, or in fact did, enjoy the food that she ate on set. That she that the whole thing built toward her taking a bite of it. And that her reactions were so... Um, I don't want to say over the top. They were so pleasurable. I'm, and please, genuine. I, I believe they were genuine. Don't at me about Paula Deen. I know the problems. I get it. I get it. But I'm just telling you that what he was saying to us is in our show, if it had ever come about, I need to see you truly act like you love to eat this stuff. Well, and listen, if you look at me, you'll know I do like <laughs> to eat it. So it, I think that that's also part of the attraction of food in movies is watching people eat it. I mean, the, the, right, the, the joke – I love Arrested Development. The joke is that Portia de Rossi actually eats a chocolate sundae. <laughs> which I don't believe Portia de Rossi's ever eaten a chocolate sundae in her life. The joke is that Portia de Rossi actually eats these things and her mother calls her fat. I mean, that's the joke in Arrested Development. But part of the humor is just watching Portia de Rossi eat that chocolate sundae, of which there are like 60 sitting right behind her offset somewhere. Okay, And so, a bucket right next to her at a frame because every time the camera's uh, off, I don't, she's oh, losing it. I don't know that that's true about her, but she is <laughs> awfully thin, awfully thin. And I'm not saying she has an eating disorder. I'm saying you chew it up, camera cuts, you spit it out. Well, yes. Now, that is true. And Bruce and I have been on many a set, even on morning shows, in which the host takes a bite – they then cut away to us talking or something else happening. And while they're doing that, the host is spitting it out. I mean, yeah. yes, that is absolutely the case and is always the case as far as I know. Okay, so that's the whole discussion about food in movies and why it looks so much better than even food in our lovely cookbooks and even in videos or YouTube videos that you watch. It just has all to do with budgets and lighting and the sheer mass of people that exist in a movie production generally. 
Okay, before we get to our next segment, let me remind you that you should like our podcast. You should subscribe to it. If you would give us a comment, we would most appreciate it. It helps us a great deal with the algorithm. And hey, it's nice to show a little love back. So give us a comment and our uh, rating. And, you know, we're going to keep doing what we're going to do. So now up next, segment two. Our patented one-minute cooking tip. What is our one-minute cooking tip? You can make less than stellar olive oil taste really good. So you buy some (laughs) crappy olive oil, and maybe you knew it was crappy, maybe you didn't know it was crappy. But put it in a jar and put in some strips of fresh orange or lemon rind, put in some sprigs Mm -hmm. of thyme or rosemary. Mm -hmm. You can even make vegetable oil taste better this way. You can. Um, but I'm talking about stuff that you might want to like dip bread in then. I yeah, don't yeah, want to dip yeah. in vegetable oil. No, no, of course not. And where you could a combination of the citrus and the herbs, some garlic if you want, put it in a dark pantry or dark closet for two weeks and you got something delicious. Yeah, I have to tell you that if you don't know about a rosemary sprig and strips of orange rind in olive oil, you are truly missing out. And in fact, for your next cocktail party, consider doing that, putting it back for like a couple of weeks, getting that oil and then gently heat Heat it over very low heat on the stove, not until it's even smoking. I mean, just until it's warm, and then throw olives and nuts into it. Everyone will dive mm. in. Up next, segment three, Bruce's interview with, yes, movie food stylist Zoe Hegedush. She's going to give us the lowdown on how movie food actually gets made. See, this was all building to a climax. And here it is with Zoe Hegedush. Today's guest is one of the most creative food people we have ever had on Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Zoe Hegedush, chef and food stylist with a master's in food design and innovation. Zoe has created food for movies like Dune and the art house horror thriller Midsommar. Welcome, Zoe. Hi, Bruce. Thank you for having me. So most people don't wake up and decide they're going to be a food stylist. I mean, for me, it was after writing my 15th cookbook and I wanted to be more in control of how the photos of my own recipes looked in my book. What was your journey like? So I went to culinary school in Spain. Uh, So my interest for food was always there. But in the same time, I was also interested in art and design. And, uh, And my goal was from the beginning was to unite food and design, food and art. And after years of being surrounded by the culinary world, um, food styling for movies became one of the ways of expressing myself and putting these two together. You received a degree in food design and innovation. What does that training for that compare to simply going to culinary school? I don't think it compares. I think it just adds extras. So it helped me, for example, broaden my view of looking at food the ways of thinking of food. It helped me understand that there are other ways of of working with food and not only the world of restaurants exists. On the other hand, I think culinary school or a culinary training is important, necessary also, because I'm handling food and I'm I'm serving food for people. And on many occasions, I, I need and I'm using so many things I have learned in culinary school. So... How did you get your first job doing food for film? That time I was working with a creative catering company in Budapest and uh, we were holding an oyster and Prosecco night. And the production designer from that movie came to the event and uh, we had a great talk there. And after that, one day he reached out to me 
and we started to work together. What are some of the challenges you face doing food for movies that you don't face when you're shooting just a beauty shot in a controlled environment for a magazine or a cookbook? There are many challenges. Um, first of all, there is always something to solve quickly. Uh, you have to be much more flexible um, in movies than in other more controlled environments. Like, for example, I'm always dealing with, uh, with to keep the food warm and to keep it fresh and serve in the right time for the actor to have it warm when they have to eat in the scene. There's very little time between shots to change the plates. So it can be quite a challenge. And also because I'm not always close to the set. So I, like, for example, I have my, my kitchen set up outdoor, but the, because there are no place indoors, so there is a distance. So it's, it makes everything more challenging. When you have to change plates quickly for shot after shot, do you have to have three, four, five, or 20, 30, 40? of the same dish? It really depends on the scene. I usually know more or less how much I will need. I, I know how much an actor can eat. So that's also something. I know that he won't be able to eat from an oyster 30 pieces. So I more or less know how much to prepare because the director won't ask more than, I don't know, 15, just because he knows that the actor can't can do that. But yeah, sometimes I have to have 20 or whatever. Yeah, it depends on the food. And how do you handle food sitting out for hours for a shoot. You talk about oysters. No, no actor is going to want to eat an oyster that's been sitting there for four hours. No, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm prepared. I mean, I'm always have a fridge and like everything I need, like to have everything in, con under control, like temperature rise and like hygienically also. Is there a difference between creating food for an outdoor shoot than for something indoors on a set? I would say yes. Outdoor, there are more details I have to take in consideration. For example, the weather, the heat. But honestly, sometimes it can be as hot indoor as outdoor in the summertime. So it really depends on each scene and set. It depends on many things like the season, the location, the number of people eating. One of the last movies I worked on during winter uh, had a scene with an oyster bar, uh, which is already a delicate type of food. And uh, the set was indoor, but honestly, it was so hot indoor as it would have been a summer day outdoor. So at the end, it didn't make a big difference. If the type of food is not specified in the script, I have the possibility to decide what food to use for the given scenes. I always try to be practical and hygienic. I would think that they always tell you exactly what. So if they leave it up to you to put the food out, how do you decide what you want to put out? I mean, usually there is, for example, one thing specified, like, for example, they want to see a fish. But sometimes it's just there is a breakfast. So I'm usually starting with making mood boards and like making some examples of the food and putting it into the design and to see like how this whole thing like comes together. And then, of course, the director then can decide like what he prefers. I watched the film you worked on Midsommar and there was a huge cast. How do you deal with food allergies and food preferences? The food has to look the same for everybody. How do you handle that? I mean, I usually talk with the actors or I receive the information before the shooting to know allergies, intolerances and preferences. 
But of course, if the cast is so big, I can't really know everybody's dietary restrictions beforehand. So what I try to do is ask them at the location. And if someone has some really special need or something, I try to replace their food with another option. Well, that can't always be easy. If you have to have lamb and somebody doesn't eat meat, I mean, how do you make replacements that look like the food it's supposed to be? I mean, usually the camera focuses on the main actors, let's say, and then the main actors, I always know what they eat and what they don't eat. So I can prepare. And if someone is vegetarian, then I will make a vegetarian lamb. How do you make a vegetarian lamb? To replace meat, there are some good substitutions. For example, I like to use oat. You can work with that quite well and put some things in it, which changes the texture and you can color it. I had watched an interview you did with someone talking about the movie Midsommar. Takes place outdoors. I understand when you shot that movie, it was very, very hot. And there are raw egg yolks sitting on top of a dish. And you came up with a very creative solution to replace those egg yolks because egg yolks in the sun don't work. Tell me how you did that. What you replaced to make that work. I used the spherification technique, which means that I made like a sphere from mango juice. So it's a culinary technique that you put this liquid into two different other liquids, which make this sphere. And then this sphere, you can like really hold it in some some syrup or, or oil or it depends on the flavor and then you have that and the texture exactly like an egg yolk it sounds like that is the perfect balance of what you learn how to deal with food in culinary school but you learn these molecular techniques in food design and innovation are you told up front whether the actors are going to eat or not eat yes Also, if if the main actors are eating, I I have to know that, yeah. If you know they're not going to eat, does that make your job easier? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, of course. When you do food for a set and you know the actors are not going to eat, do you still do real food or do you do fake food? I use 98% real food, but sometimes I, I have to use some base, which is not real, like... It's, it's like under it is, for example, not a tart, it's something else to hold it longer sometimes, but I'm trying to use real because it just looks more real and, and the directors like that. We've all seen actors just poke and pick around their plates and push food around and they don't eat much. Is that because actors don't like to eat or is that because they don't trust the food that's out there in front of them? It can be both, but I think... They just, I mean, it's not the most comfortable thing to eat while you are talking and then you are just moving to another scene and maybe you, they just had lunch. And of course, I mean, it's, it's hard to serve them warm food because there are so many things we have to stop so many times. And this is why I think it's important to have this culinary knowledge because, I mean, I, I know people maybe don't have that much and they're just serving to look good but like i'm really trying to have the best taste also what was your favorite movie to be doing the food for my favorite movie i was working on last year actually with yorgos lantimos uh it will came out this year hopefully called poor things and why was that your favorite it's quite a surrealist movie 
and uh, it had like amazing sets and designs. And what kind of food did you prepare for that movie? Kind of everything, like from breakfast scenes to dinners to different kind of restaurants. Well, I can't wait to see how that one comes out. And what are you working on now? I'm working on the John Wick Origins series. Um, the Continental, and I'm um, preparing for a Netflix miniseries called All the Lights We Cannot See. Do you find that your projects get more and more challenging as you go on? It depends. I mean, Midsummer was a big challenge and, and a really big thing to do. These two movies are interesting, but it's not that focused on food. Like there are some scenes and some like really part of it, but it's not the not the whole movie. It's about food. Zoe Hegedush, you add to the movies you work on in a tremendous way. And I thank you so much for sharing a few minutes of your time with us and sharing with us what you do. Thank you very much. It has been a pleasure. Okay, Bruce, that was fascinating. Wild. <laughs> only imagine what it takes and I can only imagine the pressure of movie production. There is so much money on the line in every single shot. So much money being spent in every direction. I, I know that we pass out on our, you know, uh, $10,000 food shoots for cookbooks. I can only imagine what happens in movies. Okay, so finally our traditional fourth segment. <laughs> What's making us happy in food this week? I think I'm going to start. Okay. You start. It's tortilla chips. And <laughs> Bruce is laughing because, you know, I really have a weakness in life. And here's my weakness. Salty tortilla chips. I cannot let them alone. And last night we had a beautiful vegan dinner out of our book, Grain Mains. It's this fabulous casserole of brown rice and millet and mushrooms and sweet potatoes and edamame and chestnuts. ginger and chestnuts. It's a really beautiful, beautiful casserole. Bruce made it. It was very cold last night here in New England. It snowed. We had a fire. We sat in the living room. We were eating this casserole. But beforehand, he put out some bean dip and some corn chips and I swear to God, I couldn't let them alone. I can't let corn chips alone. Go, uh, tortilla chips are just my downfall, and I can't help it. They make me very happy. They They're make me happy, too. salty and sweet, and they're my childhood in Texas, and... Well, there you go. I ate way too many of them before I got my nice vegan casserole. What's making you happy in food this week? What's making me happy in food this week is creme mousseline. Oh, my gosh. Now, All right, then. All right. So it goes right from tortilla chips. So I got the downscale crap out of the truck stop, and you got the French patisserie. I get the creme mousseline. So now, to be absolutely honest, I have never even made creme mousseline <laughs> until this week but it's a friend's birthday and i was making a cake to celebrate his birthday you should see this cake it's insane there's a picture of this cake up in our facebook group cooking with bruce and mark so if you go to our facebook group you can go through the photos there and you will see a picture of this fraisier this french oh strawberry cake it's a, if you watch so, the british great british baking show you know that seasons ago they had to make one for mary berry anyway they go did on. it was one of their challenge things in the middle but it and i over colored my marzipan on top it's a little too dark green it's supposed to be very Pale Forest green. green. And mine is like deep sea <laughs> emerald. It's crazy. Yeah, it but so creme mousseline, you take a pastry cream, right? What is that? It's pastry cream is basically vanilla pudding, only super thick so that when you cut it, it kind of holds. So think about what goes in the middle of like a vanilla cream pie. Mm -hmm. If you make it with enough egg yolks and real vanilla, the French call that pastry cream. Yeah, like what's in the middle of an eclair. Now, if you make that pastry cream and cool it, 
not completely, but just cool it down to like room temp, but barely warm. So when you put your, the back of your hand on the top of it, it has the barest warmth. Put it in a stand mixer, beat it with a whip, and beat in three sticks of room temperature <laughs> butter. That is creme mousseline. Butter beaten into pastry cream and put in a cake with strawberries and I don't know what they had. Marzipan. Marzipan and raspberries, a layer of raspberries. And layers of genoise, and I brushed the oh genoise with melted marmalade. There's oh, a layer insane. of red currant jelly in there. Insane. Go so, look at the picture and join our Facebook group too, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And when you're there, look through the photos and look at a picture of this frisier cake with creme mousseline. It, it was an insane task. We should have shot a video of your making it, but you know what we just didn't and so we could talk about it on air and come back next time because next week we got more we're gonna start a two-part series on barbecues and how to work with your barbecue and how to buy the best barbecue because despite the fact that there's snow on the ground in new england spring and summer are coming so gotta fire up that grill see you soon on cooking with bruce and mark